the crux of my point is to think of Cuba as a normal place. California, California, streaming on such a winter day. It's hot as balls. It's not winter. I wish it was winter. My God. Um, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to a Thursday stream brought to you by the Bituation Room Podcast. I am Francesca Fiorentini. Thank you so much for joining us in the middle of your day, wherever you are. I see there's someone sweating balls in Ireland for no reason. Um, yeah. It's the end of the world as we know it. All right. I'm done. I Welcome to the show. This is what it is. It's me singing. And then we're just going to straight talk about Cuban communism for an hour. <laughs> um, my friend Nato Green is here, obviously, friend of the show. You guys know him and love him. He's taking some time out of his busy uh, union organizing schedule uh, to be here. So thank you so much. Hit the like button. Share this stream right now. We're getting into Cuba. We're getting into Haiti. If there's some time left over, I'm going to talk about James Carville, the Democratic strategist in biggest air quotes ever. Um, and once again, you can become a patron of this show, good people. If you support and love this content and you love this show, hey, why not kick us some money? Patreon.com slash Bituation Room. Five bucks, 10 bucks gets you a shout out. 20 bucks uh, is going to enter you into a world of merch that will be dope. I am working on it right now. Um, and also, if you're listening as a podcast in the future, what up? Give this podcast five stars. That is super sweet. That is solidaridad, as they say. Uh, my hair is dirty. Also, if you're on a podcast, you're not seeing that. So that's good. Um, all right. Here he is, you guys. Uh, you've seen him from this show. Uh, pl please welcome Mr. Nato Green. Hi, Nato. Uh, it's, it's 64 degrees in San Francisco right now. You know, this is the, I usually hate summers in SF because they're, they don't exist and they're cold as hell and they're just blustery. But the rest of yeah. the world is so hot that I'm like, no, no, that was the right, that's the right place. Yeah. We, I mean, uh, as you know, the, tw the twins, the twins, yes. one of the, one of the twins is currently doing surf camp here where it's 57 degrees in the morning when they go surfing. Amazing. And the other twin is going is is right now backpacking in Yosemite where it's like 175 <laughs> degrees, <laughs> and according to the latest weather forecast, about to have those like dry lightning strikes that will incendiar el mundo. So that's interesting that like the per the one that's like not surfing in the Pacific in like crazy waves is like actually being a little bit. It's like a tougher situation. You'd think that Yosemite would be like the safer choice for summer activities, but it's not. Um, no. Yeah, no, camping's canceled. Climate change canceled camping, which is really music to many people's ears. But uh, I, I like my it. my ears. Hell yes. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was like, you know, I I, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but the, you know, like in San Francisco, people have been like, like all these people are complaining about crime in the city and how unsafe they feel in the city. And I'm like, 
I feel so much safer in the city than I do in the countryside because I'm a city guy. Like I understand how to read city danger. Do you know mm, what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, whereas when I'm out in the woods, I just, it's like everything is, is deliverance. Everything is <laughs> yeah. like white supremacist, <laughs> hillbilly, Nazis, uh -huh. and bears coming to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like so, a time to kill plus deliverance plus misery plus, right, all of it. I don't know, Jason, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's yeah. true. It's, it's Blair, Blair Witch Project, all of it. It's a really, it's an elaborate way of saying you're afraid of the dark. I appreciate that. I'm, a, know, I'm a city like, kid. I, I'm a city kid. I'm just, <laughs> uh, I'm just uh, much more comfortable, uh, you know, being like, I would rather, I, I, I like knowing that if I start screaming because I'm being stabbed to death in my home, that my neighbors can hear me. Sure, they won't uh, do anything about it because San Francisco has changed. Yeah. Um, that's so funny. I've got Mark O'Brien on YouTube says, I feel scared as fuck in the country, lol. <laughs> I can't tell if he's in the country or he's like when he goes to the country. Um, yeah. Speaking of countries, great segue. Uh, we're going to talk sure. about Cuba um, and places where it's hot as balls. Right now in Cuba, July and in sticky. Cuba. It's sticky. Yeah. So sticky. Um, so. NATO talks about his twins, who are his kids, and he and his fam have spent time in Cuba. Um, I have visited, you know, like a gringa eh, when Obama was nicer to us. Um, so we're going to talk about what's been going on. I want to play some clips. I want to get people's reactions because, you know, it is a volatile and very, like, polarized political situation and and i think um it's important to suss it out and talk about it from a progressive and a leftist perspective from an anti-imperialist perspective maybe from even like a socialist communist perspective although you know let's pace ourselves here um but so thank you so much for chiming in feel free to send in questions but let's just you know get get right to what has been happening and i have um you know a, a few clips to sort of bring us up to speed but as you know this week thousands of cubans have been taking to the streets um to protest the economic crisis that has been happening there now this is not necessarily um the economic crisis that the right would have you believe which is communism um but it is uh, the worst economic crisis the, the, the country's faced since like the early 90s after the Soviet Union fell. Uh, Cuba relied a lot on uh, money from the Soviet Union. But so the economy shrunk like 10% in the last year. COVID has hit it hor horribly, not health wise until recently, but because the country relied so much on tourism. Um, the other thing that happened is that these Trump sanctions, he boosted the sanctions um, on Cuba, those hit at the end of 2020. And now we're sort of seeing also the reverberations. So there's a number of things that are at play. What that means for people in the streets and people in their homes, shortages of food, shortages of medicine, shortages of electricity, rolling blackouts. So, you know, Texas in the year 2021. Um, and all of us when the pandemic hit, uh, you know, every time we see food lines, of course, in the United States, we're like, do not this is capitalism, right? Um, but anyway, we'll get into that. Um, so I just wanted to play a little clip of this independent journalist from an organization called Belly of the Beast, which does independent reporting from Cuba. His name is Daniel Montero, and he was on Democracy Now! And I really appreciated what he had to say. And then, Nato, I want to sort of get your your initial thoughts on sort of the um, this first wave, like this, what has been happening and, and why. 
Um, here he is. Let me see if I can correctly do this. Um, what happened this July 11th was um, historical. There's no denying that. Bad. I mean, not since 1994, thousands of people had taken to the streets. And back then, it had to do with it, uh, another major economic crisis we had, that one caused by the fall of the Soviet Union. The thing is that right now, a big number of things have combined. Like, we're not only going through the hardest moment of the pandemic in Cuba. We had been doing very well with the pandemic so far, but in the last months, things have not been well. We have thousands of cases. At the same time, uh, there's big lines people need to do just to acquire the basics. There's no medicine. Uh, so all of these things have come together. And at the, at the same time, I would say that uh, everything people are seeing on, on media, especially media based out of Florida, that people now, everyone has access to internet uh, in Cuba. Um, I would say that the picture they're painting to their audience is that one of a country falling to pieces, we need uh, help from whatever we can get. So I think I think that when all of these things came together, um, then this happened. Several cities across the country, um, people went to the streets. And of course, the biggest ones happened here in Havana. I was in downtown Havana. Uh, I saw thousands of people uh, there. They were calling for the end of communism. They were calling for a change. But the combination is interesting because when you hear the, the things they're saying when they sing together, um, it's all about the politics of it. But when you talk to them, we were doing interviews in the streets. When you talk to them, they were just like, we just want more food, we just want medicine, we just want the basics. And I think that it's quite an interesting combination. Okay, I'm going to stop him right there and just sort of uh, talk about that. So it's a sort of what I was saying before, but he was basically like, they some people are calling for the end of communism, but also when you ask, ask, ask them, what exactly are you talking about? People will talk about the very real conditions um, that are being suffered right now. Um, but NATO, can you give me your sense of having lived in Cuba and having sort of what those conditions are and what they are not as compared to maybe other countries in Latin America or the Caribbean? Um, and whether you saw some of this like initial unrest and sort of grumblings as well when you were there not so long ago. Yeah, uh, so uh, I mean, the, the, the crux of my point is to think of Cuba as a normal place. <laughs> um, <laughs> and to think of Cubans as normal people. Um, uh, and so, and not like, and the, and so and what that means is that the, that in the United States, when people talk about Cuba, it's as an argument for an abstract idea about is socialism a success or a failure? Yes. Full stop binary question. And, um, and that's a very like outside view. Um, and what, you know, it, I mean, similarly, like, you know, some people have been posting that, um, you know, when the, when the Black Lives Matter marches happened last summer, some people were calling to like for a complete abolition of the U.S. state. But most people wanted police to stop killing black people. Right. And so, like, you know, it's the nature of protests that people show up wanting all kinds of different things. Right. Like, you know, the Women's March included a range of like people who just wanted Hillary Clinton to be the capitalist warmonger imperialist president. Uh, and people who like were anarchists, like it was the whole spectrum, right? Yeah, it was a beautiful um, time. 
It was a beautiful time. Moment. It was a united front. Like in you know, in San Francisco, we have this guy Frank Chu who shows up at protests in a in a suit with a with a homemade sign that says "12 Galaxies Guilty to a Blacktronic Society," and he's like a local. And and here everybody knows, like, oh, that's a local character. Frank Chu is here with his Blacktronic Society sign, but it's like you if someone from the, another country came in and were like, all of San Francisco believes in the Blacktronic Society. Uh, that would be nonsense. You know what I mean? Dude, so, I, I want to now know more about the Blacktronic Society, but uh, yeah, that's a different that kind of time. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> when you're older. <laughs> so, the, um, you know, and so like, and Cuba is, so when people, when there are problems, Cuba definitely has problems. And in some ways, like people on the left in the US sort of come at it from the place of like very like solidarity with, you know, with the Cuban people and the Cuban revolution and like anti-imperialism. And I get all that, but also I've spent enough time in Cuba and have enough friends there, you know, that like I have to be a little bit measured about that because my Cuban friends are pretty pissed off. Mm -hmm. Like that there's a high level of frustration um, with how messed up things are. But mostly like, like the dude was saying, you know, I met. I, I know some people who were like socialism failed. Full. That's their perspective. In Cuba. But in Cuba, mm -hmm. like we're we're evidence that socialism failed. But there's a whole lot more people who like the idea that, that of a safe country with no violence and no drugs and no gangs and no crime. Who like the idea of universal literacy and universal education. Who like the idea of mass subsidy for the arts and transit. Uh, who like the idea of everyone having health care, right? That there's a lot of stuff that is that people take a lot of pride in and really care about, uh, and they don't they don't want unfettered capitalism. They don't want to be like Haiti, which is really the alternative. Um, you know what they want is enough food um, and enough money, and some of that you know, and and because it's like some of that is clearly the fault of the 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 U.S. embargo, yeah, but. It's like people, the you know, there's and people don't like the embargo. But the people that I knew, like I heard a bunch of people say, "I'm sick of blaming the gov the U.S. for all of our problems." Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm sick. Like, we have to take some responsibility. Like, I wrote this piece about about Cuba in the LA Review of Books when I was there, and I showed it to a Cuban friend, and he was like, "This is all right, NATO, but I think you were too easy on us. You like you you didn't say enough about our own victim complex as a people." And I was like, "Dude, I'm not going to write that." That's your story. <laughs> Um, so, you know, the, um, but I think so that's interesting like, that you even say that, like, like it even feels weird to even, you know, say that we are an anti-capitalist uh, or an anti-capitalist, yeah, anti-capitalist and, and anti-imperialist, you know, politically and, and a progressive show and even sort of talk about Cuba in a way that it does feel semi-paternalistic and like, well, what gives you the right and why are we even having this conversation? And it, it is, it is, nothing gives us the right, literally nothing. <laughs> and, right. and I think, but I think. I mean, I'm available to tell anyone how to run their country if they want. <laughs> like, it's not Cuba, US, Israel, Philippines, whatever. I'm here hey, for you. Hey, yeah, I got a tip jar. Patreon.com. You know, it, but I do think because of the US's historical involvement in Cuba and the proximity to the United States, in just in terms of distance, right? 90 miles or whatever it is from Florida. And the number of Cuban Americans uh, and, and um, immigrants who now live here, I feel like the fates are tied. And that doesn't give us, again, doesn't give us a right to be paternalistic or discuss it in a paternalizing way. Um, but I just wanted to name that it is, yeah, it's an interesting oh, it's, exercise it's, anyway. It's 
huge. I mean, there's a way like, you know, Cuba is important mm -hmm. in, in a way that like cannot is not the case of a lot of other countries with 11 million people. Like, <laughs> like in terms of our, you know, just just from the beginning, Columbus sails the ocean blue, comes to Cuba, 1492. Like. Pirates of the Caribbean. That's about Cuba. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, like, from Columbus to Columbus, Johnny Depp. Pirates Look, of the Caribbean. Um, uh, slavery. Like the, yeah. you know, Cuba, like there's, ha is was the second to last country in the Americas to end slavery. Like there's, uh, you know, basically a hundred years continuously of, of, of slave rebellion and uprising prior to the, you know, Fidel's re revolution in 1959. Um, you know the the Cuba's incredibly important in the history of the of the American mafia, uh, you know, and the mafia getting set up in the U.S. Havana was Vegas before Vegas was. Like mm -hmm. the you know the counterinsurgency strategies that the U.S. ends up developing in Vietnam were first attempted in Cuba and failed in the Bay of Pigs, yes. and then get refined in Vietnam. Like the both the Cuban left and the Cuban right, like ends up being a through line since you know for the last sixty years that are important, like Cu the Cuban right turns up again and again across the Americas as, you know, as whether it's in, uh, you know, in, in involvement in with dictatorships and coups in other countries in South America or in Central America involved in the drug trade, the Cuban left ends up being an inspiration. You know, Cuba yeah. is set, is sending people to, you know, Cuba plays a, is, is what the only third world country to, to, to project itself in foreign policy terms internationally in in that way. Like Cuba plays a critical role in ending apartheid in South Africa. Like if you talk to South Africans, revolutionaries who were, who were part of that, who were like, you know, that Cuba sent um, thousands of soldiers to, to Angola. Mm -hmm. It was the first military defeat of the apartheid government in the 70s. That was a turning point. That was like the first crack in the edifice of apartheid. And so South Africans like have this incredible you know, connection because of, because of Cuban solidarity in the, in the Angolan struggle. Um, so like there's this and, incredibly- And I think the other part of it is that, you know, the revolution was successful, right? And, and yeah. like, I think, you know, what are we now? Uh, 40, like 60 years of success or relative success is successful, right? I mean, I think the United States has largely backed off in the last 30 years. I mean, it has resulted to, after Bay of Pigs, after the assassination attempts, has resulted to crippling sanctions, um, but, it, but largely has given up trying to coup uh, Cuban leaders. Now, I, I also just want to say, I've only visited Cuba once. It was for a week. I had been living in Argentina before that for five years. We've talked about this a billion times. Went to I've lived in Buenos Aires, a city that is insanely unequal when it comes to class uh, and, and the economy in terms of, you know, children rifling to, through trash in the street while, you know, tourists and others eat, you know, steaks in outdoor settings or whatever. Like that is, and it is perpetual. And you cannot go to certain neighborhoods you know, as a tourist at night or as anyone at night, because you will be robbed, you will be kidnapped. You, you know, there is an insane amount of, um, of, of, of crime, but actually relatively low crime can like in relationship to the amount of inequality that there exist that exists in a city like Buenos Aires, a city like Rio, a city like Sao Paulo, so many other cities throughout Latin America. And when I went to Cuba, I was like, Oh, I'm walking through the streets at 11 p.m. in a neighborhood I've never been in before. 
yes, I speak Spanish. That's nothing. It doesn't matter. I was like, people don't seem like they're about to, like that they are, they need to uh, rob me and take my phone to like make ends meet. Now that could be because the consequences for them doing so would be far greater, but like I've never actually been in a place that felt that safe in Latin America as Cuba. I'm, I'm like as Havana, I, I felt incredibly safe. In other countries, capitalist countries, incredibly unsafe. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to like name that. And the other thing, like these are anecdotes, but, and I know NATO, you've got a billion of them, but like, I remember this this woman like talked to me and she was like, oh, did you bring any like dresses or shirts from the United States that like, you could like give me? And, you know, and I was like, I'm sorry, I don't have anything, you know, and she's like, oh, we don't have any like we don't have nice stores here. We really want stores. And I was like, yeah, we've got nice stores, but we don't have health care for all or like, you know, good education. And she was like, oh, <laughs> She looked at me with this like disgust, like, oh, oh, that sucks. I don't, I would, you know, those are important things to me. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, tr trying to like uh, explain to Cubans how um, like we have massacres in the United States, like, so, like a gunman will walk into a place and open fire and kill 50 people. They're just like, that's horrific. <laughs> you know, like, People get arrested in your city for being homeless. Yeah, that's horrible. You know, yeah. so, um, but you know, but again, it's like the the um, you know. So there's this inc you know incredible deprivation uh, there. Like there's not enough there's not enough food. Like there's not enough money. Um, and 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 I think you know if I were like the so people have frustrations with the government. And because the government controls the economy, sort of the default is like to be mad at the government about stuff. Like there's no sense of personal responsibility or like you pull, your up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps because the government runs the whole economy. So right. like there's no one else to blame, uh, like to take your protest to. And it's, um, and you know, there's a level of, um, you know, uh, there's a real generational divide. Like the people who sort of, came into adulthood before the fall of the Soviet Union still have some memory of like the sort of good old days of revolutionary strength and people who came, became adults in the nineties or later only, you know, in my experience are much more cynical because their memories, you know, are only of, of, uh, hardship. In the nineties um, were rough. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, in, you know, the Soviet Union falls in 89 and in, you know, in the next, uh, you know, six years, caloric intake of the Cuban people dropped by almost 30%. Jesus. Um, so like, the, you know, the Cubans will say like, we went to sleep rich and we woke up poor and, um, and like the living through the special period, like you talk to people who hunted cats or ate, you know, like sauteed banana peels and olive oil and onions, uh, you know, or sp ate sponges like to survive. Um, and so it was a real like generational trauma, what they went through in the special period and they're going through it again. Um, yeah. and, and it, but it's not like it's, it, it's, it, you know, when people, when I say that people are mad at the government, like there's not, there's usually not like, I want the government to change these four policies. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's not that specific. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, you know, we like we're broke and we want things to be better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I mean, the other thing I would say is like, just to put it in the broader context of Latin America, like as much as people are, are like, you know, are like there are protests in Cuba and therefore 
people want an end to the entire system of government and unfettered capitalism. Like literally a month earlier, you know, there were 19 people were killed in protests in Colombia over the same ship. Yeah. And the president in Colombia uh, is a, you know, right wing Trump supporter and no one is drawing similar conclusions about Colombia. Like, you know, the problems of Cuba are problems of, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, I said like Cuba, I said to somebody recently, Cuba is a plundered Caribbean country first and a socialist country second. And they were uh, the person I was talking to was was from the Caribbean and they were like plundered Caribbean country is redundant. Um, <laughs> they're all plundered. No, no. And I think that that's really important to remember that the situation gets so politicized when it is just about basic needs. Right. And it and and I do think that. um it is not. It is at once a reflection, but also not a reflection of the so-called failures of communism. Um, but what I do think is a reflection of is a is a success of reform to the communist um, party in Cuba. The fact that there are these protests that we haven't seen right in thirty years or whatever the world hasn't seen. It's not unrelated to the fact that the government has been more liberal when it comes to internet use. You know, now they've been revoking it and sort of using it as like a, you know, a weapon against it's their own people when, you know, there's protests organized, but it's like not having the internet in the year 2020 or 2021, you know, it, it, I would amount to like kind of a human rights violation, <laughs> you know, like that is, that feels um, totalitarian and is. Um, but so it's yeah, interesting you, how you, like- You not being able to take selfies is exactly like, being shot to death in a soccer stadium. It's the same thing. Fuck you, first of all. But it is. No. <laughs> no, but not but but not having access to the outside world and not having access to uh, information. And I think what's interesting about that is that the government knows that once they allow for the internet, they open themselves up to all kinds of information and misinformation from spreading they open themselves up to you know rallies being organized from outside agitators or rallies being organized from inside agitators you know there's all kinds of stuff that that happens when you do that but i think it is good that they are moving in that direction and they have been moving in a direction of reform over the last few few years if not you know maybe not fast enough for some but i do want to just say that let's go back to what's going on now so in response to these protests, the president, who is not a Castro brother right now, right, uh, Diaz-Canel, um, who, talking about the protests, said there were three kinds of protesters, counter-revolutionaries, criminals, and those with leg legitimate frustrations, which I think is very funny. They were like, and there's some people with legitimate frustrations, because most governments don't give people even that. If, like, there's one agitator or criminal, they're like, everyone's a criminal, right? We know that. Um, but Cuba announced Wednesday it was temporary temporarily lifting restrictions on the amount of food and medicine travelers could bring into the country in an apparent small concession to demands by protesters who took to the streets last weekend. So it's one small thing. Benedo, is this in terms of people who are actually like tourists who are visiting or Cubans who are coming back to bring like goods back? Yeah. If so, if you're like, if you're uh, flying into Cuba, if you're like at the airport in, uh, in Florida or in Mexico where, where the places that I've fl flown in through, mm -hmm. or and actually if you're, if you're boarding a flight outside of Cuba, what you will see is a lot of Cubans, uh, a lot of people flying into Cuba, either Cubans going home or people going to visit family in Cuba with like basic necessities, like yeah. people flying back with tires, toilet seat covers, vacuums like 
uh, like tons of stuff. Um, so th there's just a shortage of basic stuff. And so people bring back supplies. And I apparently, uh, I mean, this is, this is a bit bananas to me, but apparently because of COVID, they were restricting how much stuff people allegedly people could bring back, um, be, you know, to like, expedite people getting through the quarantine or checkpoints yeah. or whatever. Um, and, so, and a lot of the reasons people don't have that is because of the embargo um, itself, correct? Yeah. I mean, so there, so the, the, when we say the embargo, we're actually talking about a bunch of different policy components. There's the Helms-Burton Act that was adopted in the 90s and signed by President Clinton that is a congressional, it's a statute that limits trade with Cuba, mm -hmm. but there's a bunch of exemptions. And under uh, under Trump, Trump tightened a bunch of those exemptions. Yeah. And so like, um, in response to the so-called, the, the sonic attacks, do you remember, people remember the sonic attacks? And so was this the Havana were, syndrome? The Havana syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> that um, is such a crazy story. It's, it was so weird. And, um, and like I, we got there right after that, right after Trump closed the embassies. Um, we were there in 2015, the week before Obama, um, the week before they opened the embassies. And then we were there right at, we got back right after they closed the embassies. And, um, and like my little, like people are always blasting Hotel California. And I was like, there it is, the sonic attacks. It's the eagle. <laughs> um, every time. Uh, it was basically something where like American diplomats were getting like vicious headaches after visiting Havana and it, and no one could like figure out why and i just yeah, love the idea that there like some cuban like spy entity was like practicing their like despicable me radar like ray gun on like our diplomats if yeah, even that or maybe it was just like the heat and the you know the humidity they got sleepy um yeah and i mean in the end to be clear like the cuban government was so emphatic that they weren't behind it yeah that they invited the fbi to come and investigate damn um, so crazy so the so but like so there's the 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 embargo but then there's also um trump closed the embassy in the 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 u.s embassy in havana which means that if cubans want to come to the united states they need to go to a, a third country to get a visa yeah so like what you'll see in Havana is there's like these huge lines of people outside the embassies of Panama or Mexico or whatever. And people will go to those, those countries have appointments at the U S embassy in order to come to the United States. And that just makes it that much more prohibitive. In addition, uh, they limited the amount of money people could send back on uh, as cash remittances so that, you know, that would, that would huge. alleviate suffering immediately yes. for Cubans in the U S to be able to send money back. Then they limited how much, um, like, you know, how much stuff people like cigars and rum that people can bring back to the United States. And then they limited a bunch of like the certain categories of tourism that are, uh, that Cuba is, is incredibly reliant, reliant on. Mm -hmm. So like under, under Obama, uh, under the so-called Obama thaw, there was this huge growth in the kinds of, of, um, of tourism that was, that were possible. There were cruise ships going in, um, 
you know, there was like lots of airlines announcing regular flights to Havana and then all that dried up under Trump. And so yeah. and because let me let me have- just read a little bit of that before you get into the the because. But but to double down on what NATO said, even though he's doing an amazing job summarizing it, I love um, Council on Hemispheric Relations. They uh, or affairs Council on Hemispheric Affairs. They have great primers and backgrounders. So this is reminder that actually one of the good things about the Obama administration was the amount of work that was done to normalize or try to attempt to normalize relations with Cuba. So let's remember the it was a backdoor deals. They were hidden from the right wing. They were hidden from the right wing media. But Obama and John Kerry and like Pope Francis and some other fools like all worked to... Senator Patrick Leahy played an important role. Leahy. My, and My favorite detail about it is that it also involves a suitcase full of semen. For real. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you need to explain this now. Um, so so the so in December of 2014, there's the beginning of this Obama thaw uh-huh. between between the US and Cuba. And the sort of the 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 issue that forced it is that there was a, a US citizen who was detained in Cuba because the US Cuban government believed he was a spy. Around the same time, the Cuban five were Cubans that were arrested in the United States. And they were being detained. And so sort of the starting point of the thaw basically was a prisoner exchange. Right. Um, but Patrick Leahy and Pope Francis and others are involved in this like clandestine diplomacy to try to lay the foundation for it. And one of the goodwill gestures of uh, uh, to, uh, yeah, to, uh, to, uh, to, to lubricate the relationship was they got... Uh, they took sperm from one of the Cuban five in his prison cell in the United States and delivered it to his wife in Cuba to mm-hmm. get her pregnant. <laughs> um, so, so at some I, point, I, do we know it was a full suitcase? Because it has a lot of sperm. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a lot of a lot like a lot of ice packs in it. Also, sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't. How do you? I guess you freeze. I don't know, but um. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, so yeah, just just um, again, ooh. Uh, so in 2008, Barack Obama said isolating Cuba had failed to advance U.S. interests and it was time to pursue diplomacy with the Castro regime. Seven, several weeks after taking office, he eased restrictions on remittances, so that's sending money back from the United States to Cuba uh, and travel, allowing Cuban-Americans to send unlimited money to Cuba and permitting U.S. citizens to visit Cuba for religious and educational purposes. I said I was Mormon. No, I didn't. I just... I just went. Uh, as Obama began softening U.S. policy toward Cuba, the island signaled openness to reform under the new leadership of Fidel's brother, Raul. Facing an aging population, a heavy foreign debt, and economic hardship amid the global downturn, Raul began liberalizing Cuba's state control economy in 2009. So the things I was talking about. Reforms included decentralizing the agricultural sector, relaxing restrictions on small businesses, um, like Airbnbs, allowing Airbnbs to operate Um opening up real estate markets, allowing Cubans to travel abroad more freely, and expanding access to consumer goods. Cuba's private sector swelled as a result, and the number of self-employed workers nearly tripled between 20, 2009 and 2013. Um, then there's, there's the stuff, the they don't talk about the semen, sadly. Um, but I really want to just read the stuff that Trump has done. Um, here, this is easier. Um, so in the Trump era... 
In addition to ending almost all individual travel to the island, Trump banned group educational ex exchanges in 2019. His administration prohibited cruise ships and other vessels from sailing between the U.S. and Cuba, banned U.S. flights to Cuban cities other than Havana. He also suspended private charter flights to Havana and barred U.S. travelers from staying at hundreds of establishments linked to the Cuban government or the Communist Party. Administration officials framed the travel bans in an effort to keep tourism dollars out of Cuban government coffers. The White House further targeted Cuba's finances by curbing remittances and imposing economic sanctions. In 2018, the UN estimated that the U.S. trade restrictions had cost Cuba more than $130 billion since the embargo began. Um, and that same year, power transferred over to Diaz-Canal. Um, I think there was another estimate that like just in 2020 alone, the government has lost, the country's lost $5 billion, something like this. Um, but so that's where we are now. Who can stop these sanctions? How so, could we end them? Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that should be said is that like, I mean, there's a couple of things happening simultaneously, which is there's there's the, the current protests that are about um, the economic uh pressures and the burdens of COVID mm -hmm. and, and food shortages and lines and scarcity um, and, uh, you know, all that stuff. In addition, for some time, there's been something called the San Isidro movement. San Isidro is a neighborhood in Havana, which is, has been, there's been a bunch of artists protesting around freedom of speech and pre-assembly uh, and protesting against censorship in Cuba. So, right. um, uh, and uh, you know, interestingly, so like these, the, the the kinds of debates around around censorship in Cuba come up, for example, um, in government standards around around obscenity, mm. um, and like perceptions that you know uh, uh, reggaeton is you know is like promoting obscenity. Um, there's also it, like it so is there, proudly, very very proudly. So you know there was there was a decree, you know, some policy that came out that was. Um, incredibly controversial around um, around art, you know, artistic expression. Artists were protesting it. Um, yeah, you know, when they like again, just to be sort of precise and specific, um, you know, in the U.S., people are sort of fast and loose with describing Cuba as a dictatorship, and Cubans do not, you know, historically have the reason these protests are so significant is that there's not a robust culture of like public dissent in Cuba, um, but. At the same time, unlike in other dictatorships, there's also not, you know, mass graves and executions. Like, you know, the the dissidents that I talked to, like people knew who was spying on them for the government. It was like a lot of, you know, what I would describe as soft coercion. Mm. Um, like I got I got picked up by the police when I was there too, and it was a pretty I think it was a that typical experience that a lot of you know not that I'm a, a Cuban dissident, but that a lot of like you know critical artists experience which is they get picked up by the police they get held for a few hours they get released or they get held for a day it's sort of like it's just sort of like uh uh there's like a lot of low intensity harassment of of dissent did you have to do your bits did you have to like do stand-up for the cuban police uh i had to i was holding up i was walking down the street with a with my zoom audio recorder talking into it and oh. uh, and and left wing expat comedian podcaster like does is not a like 
meaningful concept to them. They were like, <laughs> what is a podcast? So they like, they were like, this is the sonic attack. We found the guy, this hooked, you know, multi multi-track recorder. So basically I had to get, I got held in the police station until they found someone who understood English well enough that I could play back the tape and they could hear me being like, yeah. And then, you know, I think a, a rule of three joke would really work here. And they're like, yeah, this, this isn't, this guy actually isn't CIA. So can I, can, uh, uh, finish what you were saying, you know? Yeah. So I was just saying like that there's that, that what I think is important to remember is there are cute, there, are, there, there is, there is, and there's also domestic struggle in Cuba underway about gay rights for example, mm -hmm. and there's a gay rights movement that's advocating for more rights, and there's evangelicals that are pushing back against that. And so there's like, there at a high level, there there is um, a bunch of internal dissent and things that are struggling over that, that are being expressed on the streets right now um, that don't, that, and, and there are also people who want an end to communism and want to change the whole government. Um, and so, but I think it would be, you know, the, the problem that we're seeing with, with how it gets talked about in the United States is there's a whole range of things happening in Cuba right now and people want a whole range of things. And then like the people who are the sort of hardcore anti-communists are quick to seize on the moment and be like this, a hundred percent of these people want an end to communism and they want full-throated capitalism and they want to change the whole government system. Right. And it's, it's, you know, and it's the same talking point that those people have been saying for the last 60 years. Well, let's take it by, um, let's take it for in parts. Cause uh, you know, mama's got to clip these up later. So it has to be, uh, you know, we got it. We got, we got to go piece by piece. So, Talking about the, you know, the sanctions that Trump ramped up, the lack of remittances, uh, the prohibitions on remittances, the prohibitions on travel and all this, and, and basically cutting off the Cuban people um, even more so. And like I always say, look, if you think sanctions actually punishes the so-called dictator in charge and starves them, look at Kim Jong-un. That, yeah. that fool looks starved to you? I mean, now he's like lost weight or some shit, but like, no. These, it doesn't matter. The, the, the just, people, he just did keto. Yeah. <laughs> he just, exactly. That's the level that he's at. He's like, no, I'm only going to eat meat. Um, meanwhile, Korean, North Koreans are definitely starving. So like, it's not hitting who you think it's going to hit. This pressure is not working. So who can stop the sanctions? Who can end the blockade? Biden, just like dropping student debt is in his hands ending the embargo is in Biden's hands. Um, this is from Arturo Dominguez, who wrote for Latino Rebels, uh, the conversation about Cuba is complex. Are you willing to have it? And he points out that just last month, the United Nations voted against a UN, the U United States, excuse me, voted against the UN resolution that condemned the economic embargo for the 29th year in a row. Additionally, that opposition came as an outright refusal to return to Obama-era policies, thus maintaining the additional sanctions imposed by the Trump administration. 2019, Anthony Fiola for The Washington Post criticized the Trump administration's sanctions as being responsible for creating, quote, deepening disruptions to foreign supply chains, scaring off some of the Canadian and other banks that have helped finance $2 billion in food imports annually. Right, so these are companies that don't want to be sued. They don't want to be, you know, slapped with any any whatever lawsuits or yeah uh, uh fines for dealing doing business in cuba and uh again they're not building luxury condos it's a food aid a food program um biden's not doing anything so here's a statement that biden put out uh we stand with the cuban people in their clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic 
Okay, give them fucking vaccines then. And from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by the United States, Cuba's authoritarian regime. The Cuban people are bravely asserting fundamental and universal rights. Those including the right of peaceful protest, the right to freely determine their own future must be respected. The United States calls on Cuban, the Cuban regime to hear their people and serve their needs at this vital moment rather than enriching themselves. Beyond the insane amount of hypocrisy if you can ignore the hypocrisy, if you can ignore the fact that the United States is the reason the, Cuban, the Cubans have been under economic duress, it's a pretty good statement. You know, it's pretty, pretty fair. Pretty. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the, 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 it's the, the basic, you know, the basic issue is that like, if what you, that if what you care about is easing the suffering of the Cuban people, there's one set of policy policies the United States would follow. If what you really care about is regime change in Cuba, then you then let's be clear that you don't actually stand with the Cuban people and you don't care about humanitarian suffering. And, uh, you know, and that's the policy that we're seeing. And it's, you know, it's it obviously, as other people pointed out, it's not in any way like ideologically consistent. Um, you know, ostensibly China is a communist state and the U.S. trades with them and has defended the policy of, you know, constructive market engagement with, with China. Um, the U.S. Know. and China is like, they're like our like cool rich friend that you like hang out with and like trade clothes with and like rely on and like eat free food at their place and whatever. And then like behind their backs are like, oh my God, China's like the worst. I hate China. No, no, they're terrible. Oh yeah, no, China is so mean. And then you're like, can I come over China? China here, can I wear your clothes? Can I, let's hang. Yeah. Uh, can, anyway. I borrow, can I borrow all of your stuff? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's so it's like the, um, and so this is why, it's, you know, I, I was saying this thing about, about it being a, uh, uh, you know, plundered Caribbean country. I mean, obviously, you know, you were at the top, you said you were going to, um, uh, you know, you want to talk about Haiti and like Haiti had the, the first successful slave re revolution in the, in the world, uh, and was punished by having to pay back France for the value of the freed slaves for the next hundred years. And that fact is why, you know, from, the 1800s is why Haiti continues to be a crippled, underdeveloped country to this day. Um, so, like the the imperial center does not tolerate uppity people in the periphery. Um, the one thing I was going to say is that when I learned about the Cuban Revolution, right, happened in '59. It, it felt like, you know, and studying like anti-colonial uh, movements and successful uh, uh, toppling of colonial governments like in Haiti and slave revol revolts, et cetera, and getting your colonizer out, that Cuba never really had that moment. That Cuba was just passed as a sort, as a colony from different hands to different hands, from basically Spanish to American hands, correct? And like the Americans were essentially running shit. So 59, yeah, communism aside, it was an anti-colonial movement um, to regain autonomy and sovereignty for the Cuban people who were kept in squalor and servitude and second-class citizenship and illiteracy and forgotten. 
And I think that is an interesting thing where you you sort of, gen- and I guess in other countries, I'm trying to think of which, but like you might see that in waves. First is the decolonial movement, anti-colonial movement, uh, and then comes maybe a communist movement. Um, this happened all at once. It felt like the actual anti-colonial moment was their revolution. Yeah, I think, um, right. I think, you know, the, so to to recap the history for the listeners, you know, <laughs> Cuba is a Spanish colony until 1898. And what we call the Spanish-American War and Cubans call the War of Independence, basically the Cuban independence fighters make, fighters make a devil's bargain with the U.S. to align with the U.S. to get the Spanish out. That's successful. That's where we get Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. Keep going. Uh, I have to talk to the vet. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so they get the Spanish out, but as a result, the resulting, uh, post-independence Cuba, there's what they call the Platt Amendment, which remained in effect in Cuba for, for many years that gave the U.S. the unilateral right to intervene militarily. And so even though Cuba wasn't formally a colony after the Spanish, uh, American War, the Cuban War of Independence, the U.S. had effective military control intervened repeatedly like dozens of times over the next uh the subsequent decades and had a pretty strong hand in selecting who was going to be the the head of state and how the government was going to run and it was you know really designed to be a receptive environment for u.s investments uh in terms of the the hotel industry mafia you know sugar exports um uh and and other things like that while we wait for her to come back, um, uh, I'll, t- I'll take I'll take questions from the chat. Uh, BV, uh, Cuba is vaccinated. They also medically developed two vaccines. Um, uh, yeah, so Cuba um, Cuba has developed uh, COVID vaccines. They have, last I checked, um, been able to vaccinate about a million of their eleven million people. Um, they haven't been able to vaccinate as many of their people as they had wanted to. Um, because of the because of the um, uh, the embargo, their their ability to to produce vaccines at scale is limited, um, and so the the vaccines are effective, but they have rolled out uh, more slowly than they would have liked. Um, Todd, yeah, I like Black Widow pretty well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> no, 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 we're back to Cuba. I'm so sorry. So my cat is uh, getting dental work done today. She and she got her. This is so sad, you guys. She got her top one of her fangs removed. So you're going to be a one fang kitty. It's so sad. NATO doesn't care. He's looking at your comments. Um uh so I have to go uh not I don't have to go, but Matt is going to go pick her up. Poor Chitty. Pochitty. Um, she was she's all woken up now, so I'm sure the drugs are wearing off. Anyway, did you go over the history of Cuba? I went over the history of Cuba and I t- and I talked some about the Cuban vaccine programs. Um Okay, great. So well let's I wanted to um Obviously, NATO referenced, and we've been talking about the ways that the what's happening in Cuba is being super politicized by the far right, and also, you know, folks on the left. Although we don't have the power, uh, i.e., a major news channel streaming twenty four hours, um, uh, we try. Uh, but you know, it's being misconstrued and immediately politicized, and immediately seen as either a win or a defeat, or a sign that communism is bad or good or X, Y, and Z. So here are the, our, our our friends at uh, Fox and Friends. Um, 
Uh, and why, and here, why are you going to do this to us? Because it's important. Because uh, okay. this is the most watched network in the country. Here they here they are uh, just uh, sounding off about what's going on in Cuba. Here's how it's being framed by the right. Thousands uh, went out in the streets yesterday. You never see this kind of dissent because it's always limited. And it's interesting because the communists did allow the dissent to go on for a couple of hours. On Twitter, there's some video uh, protesters turning over a police car. Looks like uh, the United States. The United States is just the most blind, uh, like, one-to-one -one when it comes to what's happening in Cuba. It's like, oh, you mean like the Black Lives Matter protests or who are you for? Who are you with again? What are we about? Um, obviously, they're framing this all as like an anti-communist, um, you know, uh, like protests, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, um, you know, I think what, I mean, what we're seeing is that the, that, you know, Cuba, and its problems, and as we've been talking about, a lot of Cuba's problems are problems of Latin America, um, and the. Um, but it's going to be used domestically. Like it's not, you know, it's not real. This is these people don't give a shit about what's about the Cuban people or about what's happening in Cuba. This is, you know, it's like the whatever you think about Diaz Canal and the Cuban government. Uh, they're, you know, this this situation is going to be used. Uh, it was instantly, you can see it on Twitter, was being used against Bernie Sanders and AOC, and you know, to argue against uh, budget reconciliation. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, and you know, the Green New Deal and Medicare for all and raising the minimum wage <laughs> and so, uh, uh, trans rights. Just throw yeah, that in so, there. Why not? Like they're just, you know, they're gonna they're gonna pile on all that stuff. Um, uh, and, you know, and it's it's all like so. There's this hope that I think you know centrist Democrats have that they could somehow walk a line, you know, and be enough anti-communist that they're not going to get red baited. It doesn't work. Like they were denouncing Obama as a communist. Uh, they were down, you know, saying that that you know talk about Biden and, and Kamala Harris as radical leftists and you know giving into the radical you know left and the socialist left. Like they're going to red bait, you know, anyone. Uh, anyone to the left of Ted Cruz, yeah. no matter what they do. So, yes. okay. You but know. even, and, and even Democrats play into this all the time, right? Um, Senator uh, uh, Hernandez, I believe is his last name, and Bob, Bob, no, Hernandez, Bob Menendez, his name is. Um, <laughs> apologies. Uh, you know, you. plays into this all the time. Democrats, uh, especially like cons more centrist, conservative-leaning Democrats, uh, Latinos are always asked to um, and always sort of expected to like veer right um, when it comes to any policy in Latin America that whiffs. It it's almost like an exchange. Okay, we'll let you know more Latino representation in the United States Congress, but. You got to dunk on Cuba and communism and Venezuela and socialism. That's like bar barrier to entry. And then we can hold you up. Look at Ted Cruz and his dad or Marco Rubio. Like this is, I mean, and it, again, yeah. it's, it's, it's Republicans and it's also um, Democrats. It's not even, it's not, it's, and they don't just stop as you have to dump, dunk on, dunk on communism, but you also have to be opposed to, uh, you know, agrarian reform in Latin America. You have to be opposed to the countries that have nationalized their 
their their oil supply. That's all like, communism. Like, okay, I mean, you right. you, you ally yourself with the elites of all of these countries, and and yeah. by and large, those elites uh, are living in Miami. You know, are uh, living in New York, are have haven't lived in their countries for years. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yes, I. Uh, I want to play a little bit more because you've got the Miami mayor who uh, is calling for just a straight up coup in response to people protesting for uh, no electricity like blackouts and food. Yeah, yeah. Time to coup. Time to coup. The regime must end now. It is not negotiable. We asked for an international intervention led by the United States to protect the Cuban people from a bloodbath. Cubans are worthy and ready to rule themselves without tyranny. It can end today and it must end today. The implications of this moment can mean freedom for millions of people in this hemisphere. Wow. Did he rehearse that? I feel like he rehearsed that extra special in the mirror. Um, it can end today and it will end today and I am securing my reelection here in Miami. <laughs> And people make fun of the of San Francisco politicians for passing resolutions about sweatshops and whatever. Like people, no, nobody's like, why is this fucking mayor get to have an opinion about foreign policy? Like, how about you get the buses running? <laughs> but I mean, it is to me hearing that I am like, it's so dangerous to dabble in that language, and yet. I have to sort of temper myself and remember that he is just kind of gunning for re-election um, and he has to placate the the largely, not a, not solely, but largely far, you know, right-wing um, voting um, uh, Miami Cubans. But like, it's so scary to me because you're like, what? What are you doing? It's going to end today? We have to, the United States must get involved? What does he want? Does he want boots on the ground? Is that what people are straight up calling for now? Because that's what it feels like and feels like where we're headed. I have no illusions that this is going to actually lead to something like that. Thank God. Um, I was even listening, you know, I was listening to like Ben Rhodes, who was Obama's um, White House security uh, on his national security team. Ben Rhodes is by no means like anti-imperialist. You know, I'm sure he supported Obama like and his diplomatic uh, endeavors in Cuba, but he's definitely not the no boots on the ground guy. And even he is like, no, 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 like, you know, we cannot... Um, we need to not intervene anymore in countries like Cuba. Um, and it's way too soon. And again, saying the same thing, most people just kind of want to like have more food, bro, and have the electricity working uh, and getting basic medicine. And they don't necessarily want an end to the current administration. But I guess. And that's, I mean, what makes me nervous is that there's, there are like a lot of, you know, people who are otherwise liberal, like people who that people that you and I know who were out at Black Lives Matter marches mm -hmm. and they, you know, volunteered for on um, to elect Biden, people who think of themselves as, as progressive people who see these protests and, you know, and are responding to like like when when the when the protest started on uh on Sunday, the you know the hashtag that um was, was SOS Cuba. Was SOS Cuba and I looked at it and all the accounts boosting it were these like diehard, like right wing, you know, I mean, uh, they weren't just, it wasn't, it wasn't the SOS Cuba, the amplification of it wasn't just coming from the island. It was like, um, 
it was a um, you know it was like a, it was a it was a foreign right wing attempt to amplify it and take it over yes. so that it wasn't just about what Cuba the, what the Cuban people were protesting for but about these more general calls for complete regime change and intervention and so there's it it just gets real sl- slippery uh, you know with um, you know for people calling for like the Cuban people want an end to dictatorship and freedom well maybe they do but like you know, the U S should still stay out of it. Um, and, and if if, just to be like, I don't want to sound, uh, overly conspiratorial, but in these moments when suddenly people are in the streets, like Diaz Canal has said that there's, that they believe that there's paid agitators. And to some extent that that minimizes the fact that there is definitely some domestic discontent, but there's probably also definitely outside agitators. Yeah. Um, and like historically with Cuba throughout the, over the years, there have been points where, whether it was Nixon or Clinton, where the administration was sort of softening and looking for openings, mm-hmm. and then the security establishment would do something to torpedo that. Like that was some of that was the context of the whole, um, you know, like the Elian Gonzalez scandal. If yes. You remember that. Oh my God. Um, but I so, think that like, it's, it, I wouldn't you know, be you... surprised at all at all if in you know 20 years documents were declassified that showed the extent of CIA involvement in what's happening this week in Cuba. I mean I also think that the United that that the Biden administration is inheriting a you know a Mike Pompeo uh like secretary like secretary of state office and uh you know uh regime right or sort of like mentality and we don't even have diplomats in the embassy in Cuba right now. Americans don't have diplomats in the embassy, um, which you think would be kind of important if we cared about diplomacy. But that's I guess that's another thing where, like, you know, one of the few um, really shining moments of the Obama administration was the diplomacy around Cuba because it was done behind closed doors in a good way because it it, it allowed for the situation to not be politicized to death. Um, and it allowed uh, for actual diplomacy to take place. And I wonder, yeah, is is are there agitators on the right that the United States is supporting? Or maybe there's diplomacy happening from the Biden administration. I, I don't know. Um, I wanted to play, of course, what someone like uh, Marco Rubio thinks is happening, which is that Biden is a secret communist and uh you know we wish i don't know why it's so hard for them to criticize marxist i look i I do think and it's pretty clear that there are people out there that aren't saying anything and the president took a whole day to say this he finally said something he still left out the word marxist and communist and socialist what you just described the murderous nature of the castro regime that's the way every marxist regime has ever been always because marxism and socialism is built on this you go to a people and you say there's this group of good uh, noble people and then there's this group of oppressors that is trying to destroy them give us the power to crush the oppressors and if you give us the power we're going to give you security we're going to give you a stable economy we're going to give you all the things you need but the price of that of course is your freedom so they win and then what happens you don't get those things and you don't get your freedom back and then if you complain about it they crack your head open they put you in jail they exile you or they kill you and that's what's happening and that's what happens everywhere all the time everywhere all the time Okay, so um, Marxism. It has to be. It's about Marxism. Marco Rubio and Marxism and Biden not condemning the Marxism. Because Um, Marxism is about uh, that happens everywhere all the time. 
if only it was happening everywhere all the time. Uh, but I, you know, I gotta say like there, what's interesting about Cuba and like just from being there um, and again, anecdotally, but there are the opposite problems of extreme unfettered capitalism, right? It's there's free education to get a doc, like to become a doctor. Um, and yet you're not making enough money to really make ends meet. So you ditch that, go drive a cab because you're making more money driving a cab than you are as a doctor. Well, obviously I think that's probably not a good thing. You need some amount of incentive to do the hard work to, you know, to be a doctor day in and day out. It's not an easy job. No one's saying it is right. But at the same time, like, do we want the extreme wealth that is infected our medical, our privatized medical system in this country? Right. Do we want the extreme inequality that is in the rest of, of Latin America? So it's almost like el mundo al, al revés, you know, the world on its head. Uh, and, and so in that sense, it's like, if the trade-off for living under communism, I think, and this is interesting, is like healthcare, education, food, um, but like, you know, a little bit of lack of democracy. I think many people around the world might take that trade-off. <laughs> like, they might be like, no, that sounds actually okay. Including right, well, in this country, I mean, including me. Like, I'm like, I don't know how I would feel about that. If we had only one party, which we pretty much do already, but all of our needs were taken care of, I mean, I think democracy sometimes is overrated. Look at 2016, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think, I mean, and, and I, I heard this a lot from Cubans in Cuba uh -huh. is a sentiment of like, none of us are perfect. None of us have all the answers. We, you know, we need, we need to, people need to be able to come together and learn from each other's strengths and learn from each other's weaknesses mm -hmm. and build a better world together. You know, that the, the like i don't think you know i don't think our choice has to be the united states model where we have you know our freedom is 5000 cable channels but in exchange 600,000 people die of covid and we're running out of slave labor to fight our climate catastrophe forest fires um you know while while you know republicans are passing laws to make it legal to drive cars into protesters um you know, the, like, or, or Cuba. Like, I don't think it's that binary. Like, I think, yeah. I think you, I think you can say. There's always uh, Denmark. Yeah, there's always Denmark. I think, you know, I think what, the way you, you know, what we want to say is that, uh, you know, what can we learn from this model? How do we build on it? How do we improve it? You know, that let's not, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater with any of these systems. Yeah. And so making it about, you know, a conversation about like, abs, you know, as Marco Rubio does, this is what Marxism is. And therefore, if you support Marxism, you support 100% of these things. Like whether or not that even is accurate that that's what Marxism is, like that's not how the world works. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's not how societies are created. Uh, yeah. That societies are created through political contestation. So we need more of that. Mm. Mm. So it's not just about ideology. It's not just about ideology. There you go. Uh, I think that is a, that's a great way to put it. And I, do you have a second to, to talk about Haiti or do you have to bounce NATO? I do have to, I, I, I have to go in a minute. I also think before you get to Haiti, I think it's important. Uh, uh, I just want to say one more thing, please, which is the best news of the week is that Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro 
had two pounds of feces removed from his intestine and was hospitalized for it. <laughs> so two I don't pounds? Think, Did you say two think, pounds or two kinds of feces? Two pounds. Oh, so, so he was just I, backed up? I don't think the front team, it was just this funny story to follow during the course of the week. Bolsonaro hospitalized with hiccups. That's a weird story. Then Bolsonaro has two pounds of feces removed from his abdomen. <laughs> now, is so, that, I feel like that's a lot of feces, right? Should Surely we shouldn't, like maybe there's like half a pound in there somewhere, right? I mean, Francesca, everybody knows that you don't actually poop. I don't poop, I don't, obviously. I, don't, I, I know. I don't know if the Frantifa knows this, but Francesca doesn't actually have a butthole. No, uh, no, it's just smooth. I'm like a Barbie. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, she just secretes her 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 waste uh -huh. like in, in vapor form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It smells great, actually. It, it smells yeah. like roses. Um, well, Nato, thank you so much for breaking all of that down. I really appreciate it. And I, and I, I guess maybe the last question I'll ask is, um, what do you feel like the off ramp is or the wind down is when it comes to, you know, Cuba transitioning into a place um, that does have like more shops and trade and, uh, you know, uh, more, more, more internet and more press freedoms and some dissent and da, 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 like, do you feel like the government was already headed there? Um, and now that this kind of this one act of resistance has been super politicized internationally, they're like going to retract. They're going to they're go back into their corners um, beyond the immediate need to drop the effing embargo. I don't know. Like, what are your what are your thoughts on the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, we could we could always be surprised. That's always a possibility. Um that you know, it seemed. I I will be surprised if if the government and and the, the and socialism collapses. Mm. Um, I think I, I think that that's unlikely to occur as long as the embargo is in place. Because as you were saying earlier, the embargo you know allows the government to you know call people to rally around the flag. Um, right. So the um, but you know the I mean, and this is this is. The, the current protests are the most visible expression of it. But for years, like like people in Cuba sort of talk about it as like a permanent tug of war, that there's always a tug of war. Like like when I was there, I met, I met one painter mm -hmm. who said, uh, who said, you know, in Eastern Europe, the artists did, they were into socialist realism where they made art as propaganda for the government. And we weren't into doing that. We, we like to keep the censors busy. Um, that, that there's like, there, that, there's always a tug of war between uh, between the Cuban people and the government over the extent of liberalization. Yeah. And there's one step forward and two steps back. You've seen this with the growth of the private sector, where there's an expansion of, of private enterprise and then greater regulation of private enterprise. There's expansion of civil liberties through the internet and and restriction. And you know, and so I think it, it's um, it's not ex it, it's not expressed in the form of like you know, multi-party elections and, and that kind of, and, you know, 15,000 cable channels, but there is, you know, clearly there's, there's been domestic struggle. And so my guess is that there will continue to be. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if I were a betting person, what I would bet is that the, that the government figures out how to 
give people enough concessions that the protesters calm down. Yeah. And it and it but it falls short of complete system change. Right. The question is 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 how strapped are they actually? And it feels like yeah. they are. Uh, and and yeah, they it, would I think, give more concessions if they just economically could even afford them. Right. But I also think it's unlikely, for example, that they're going to, um, like, you know, like Marco Rubio is talking about violence and getting killed. I, you know, I read one study that, like, since, you know, over the decades, the Cuban government has actually executed something like 500 people. Um, you know, that there were people who were literally invading, you know, like, like in the Bay of Pigs or whatever, and subsequent, you know, attempts by CIA-backed spies to invade Cuba that they killed. But uh, this is not, Cuba's not a country where there's like mass graves and executions. And right. like, you know, I spent, I spent time in Guatemala where entire villages were exterminated. And yeah. like Cuba has problems, but it's not when they're like, there's dictatorship and dictatorship and they're not doing mass disappearances and exterminations. Um yeah. And, you know, literal genocide. So, like, I, you know, I don't think, I also don't think we're going to see a situation where, um, where, like, thousands of people are getting executed as a result of this. The other thing that's likely to occur, just because it's a pressure release valve for the country, is that, um, it, you know, that is that they're going to figure out how to let people leave. Because mm. one of one of the policy changes that happened under under Obama that is now becoming controversial is there was this wet foot, dry foot policy where if a Cuban, you know, there were all these these boat people, and if you made it to U.S. shore, you could get residency. Right. And that was seen as a, you know, and it was like this discriminatory policy where if you walk from El Salvador, you get deported. But if you sail to Florida on a raft from Cuba, you can stay. And so Cuba was offended by that. And so as part of the Obama thaw, he gave that up. Um, and that never got reinstated. That was the one Obama policy that didn't get reversed by Trump. And so now they have these a bunch of people. And this, this frankly, I mean, it's bitter. It's not good. But this also happened with Venezuela, where because of all the instability, a bunch of people left, which in some ways made things easier in the in the country. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would I would also suspect that Cuba figures out how to how to allow people leave. allow people to leave. Yeah. Thank you so much, NATO. This is great. I'm so glad you were free. Thanks for taking the time. Good to see everybody. Uh, everybody follow NATO Green at NATO Green on Twitter and Mr. NATO Green on Instagram. And you can see him here whenever. And obviously he's got amazing comedy albums you guys should be checking out. Bye, NATO. Uh, and thank you guys for sticking around. Hey, what up? Are you liking and sharing the stream? I'm going to do a stream a little bit more. Um Become a patron, patreon.com slash bituation room. If you're not already, uh, you get special shout outs. You're going to get some merch and then early access to bonus episodes. This, however, is a stream. It's just a stream. Um, but figuring out ways to thank all the people and all the Frantifa who are already around. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, this idea of of communism, socialism, etc. And I do think it's interesting because, you know, as NATO was talking about, you know, the framework of communism and the way that communism functions in Cuba, um, not being mass graves, you know, yes, there have definitely been political dissidents that have faced torture, uh, and, and, and imprisonment. Uh, no one's saying there's not, um, there's things like censorship. There's things like, you know, anti, you know, LGBTQ, um, uh, clampdowns. 
but by and large, when it comes to basic necessities, up up until now, people were getting their needs met in terms of healthcare, education, et cetera, housing and things like that. Um, but it's a fairly rigid regime. It's a rigid ass regime, right? And I think it's really interesting to compare that to Venezuela. And I, I'm not an expert on Venezuela at all, but it is interesting that Hugo Chavez in, you know, when he came to power in like the, you know, early 2000s was trying to basically create an, a, like what he called a Bolivarian socialism. Um, he didn't call it communism. He called it socialism. And there were things like, you know, money for neighborhood councils um, that actually had dissidents in them. Like there was money for radio stations. And so like, you know, organizers and activists and people on the ground could, could like, you know, have a radio show and they could talk crap about the government and no one was going to come find them and like lock them up. Um, so there was a far less of a crackdown on dissent uh, in Venezuela at least in the beginning, right? Venezuela under Nicolas Maduro has really gone off the rails and also for a number of reasons in terms of their economy, which is so pegged to oil money and so pegged to the dollar. So the foreign currency and the oil dependency, again, makes that country incredibly unstable and unable to be um, self-sufficient in that way. Whereas interesting, you have a country like Bolivia that's nearby that, you know, under Morales, who obviously is, you know, was sort of low key or high key cooed not so long ago and, and left the country. But the United States didn't really give a shit about Venice, about uh, Bolivia. We were they were like, oh, it's fine. There's nothing there that we really want. There's no oil. There's not that many elitists who are like, you know, living in Miami and like putting pressure on our politicians. Bolivia is kind of chill, whatever. And under that, you know, Evo Morales was able to pass, you know, a bunch of legislative changes, um, giving more rights to indigenous communities, workers, and also like, you know, the actual land itself in terms of uh, uh, protecting it. Um, again, not beyond critique, Morales, I think the biggest, I think the biggest critique that I have is that they don't allow for... Um, elections and within their own system of government, right? They've worked incredibly hard to get elected under democracy, but then keep on extending their uh, administrations. And sometimes they're, you know, legitimately elected, as in the case of Evo Morales, who was legitimately reelected. Media says he wasn't. Um, then he was toppled in essentially a parliamentarian-esque coup. Now, my problem isn't necessarily that he ran for, isn't that he, you know, uh, you know, I think that he legitimately won. I'm not saying he didn't legitimately win, but I am saying that, like, why are you still running 10 years after you were elected? Like, you know what I mean? And I think the more that a socialist government can can create avenues and spaces for democracy and for you know, free and fair elections, and even people who are going to challenge them within their own party and without, the better. The problem is you're always going to have a handful of landed, wealthy, and foreign-funded elites who are going to try and topple you no matter what. Um, so it's this, like, balancing act. It's a very, you know, it is a b interesting balancing act that I am fascinated by and, and have been for years. Um as people who know that I've worked on, you know, uh, a, a magazine called Left Turn way back in the day, uh, and and we talked about, you know, the the intricacies and the uh, how interesting 
Bolivarian socialism in the 21st century was and this project that Hugo Chavez was building and the project that Evo Morales was building and the pink tide, as they say. Um, so I think people are so quick to do two things. One, read Marx and apply it to a country. Like, this is what we do. We do Marx stuff. We do Marxism. That's not the way ideology and, and works, right? Um, and I think the second thing is looking at looking at places where um you know like like in like in Cuba or like in Venezuela where um there has been a crumbling of the economy and a crumbling of the social fabric um and they say the entire baby gets to be thrown out with the bathwater. All of socialism is bad. All of communism. Like they should have never nationalized the oil. They should have never, you know, kicked out these foreign investors. That's the problem. Um, and I think the reality is somewhere in between. And uh, I know the right hates when I say that. The right wing gets so mad that, oh, I believe in death squads. And no, man, that's that's like CIA who <laughs> believes in death squads. That's all the work that the United States has done to maintain and fight against so-called communism, i.e. just more sovereignty and control in the hands of people. I got to be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of like big government generally. Um, not big government in the way that the right wing conceives of it, but a very top down, um, very opaque, non-transparent, secretive a uh, form of government that I think like in Cuba they have not a big fan of that, but I am a big fan of people like getting their basic needs met and also being able to be a thumb in the eye of the United States that has used Cuba as an outpost for any kind of, you know, shady business deal to exploitative, you know, uh, uh, just a, just an offshore, just an offshore account come to life. Anywho, speaking of other places that have been pummeled by U.S. Uh, imperialism and involvement, I do want to talk about Haiti a little bit and what's been going on. Obviously, I think it is relevant now because of the language that is being used to talk about Cuba. Oh, communism has failed and this is, look at this and it's just such a, it's such a mess. Oh my God. Haiti. The answer to that is Haiti, a country not very far in fact, right next to Cuba, um, that is suffering immeasurable amounts of instability right now because of the assassination of their president, right? But that comes on the back of decades and decades and decades of instability um, as the United States has been perpetually meddling, propping up, funneling billions into that country, um, utilizing it as a uh, free trade zone to get cheap goods, calling all kinds of foreign investors and businesses to set up effective sweatshops in Haiti, you know, quote unquote, giving people jobs. Um, and none of it's worked. So here you have a, a, a Caribbean nation pillaged and plundered and punished for its own resistance, you know, to uh, French rule, obviously, and to the slave uprising years and a uh, hundred years ago, whenever that was. Um, and the legacy of that is today. And Haiti didn't have a communist revolution like Cuba did. Right. Um, and yet it's sort of a, we have these mirror experiences of what Cuba could have been of what Haiti could have been. 
I want to just go to what's happening now because there's more details coming out. And it, my God, the stuff out of Haiti gets shadier and shadier and shadier by the moment. And also, more weird American involvement. So this is from the New York Times. Suspects in Haitian president's killing met, met to plan a future without him. So Haitian officials contend that Christian Emmanuel Sanon, a doctor and pastor who divided his time between Florida and Haiti, conspired with others to take the reins of the country once Mr. Moise was killed. During a raid of Mr. Sanon's residence, they say the police found six holsters, 20 boxes of bullets, and a DEA cap suggesting that it linked him to the killing because the team of men who struck Mr. Moise, Moise's home posed as agents of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Now, I get that a lot of Haitians don't, do not even trust the Haitian police to accurately investigate what happened. Totally understand that. Just reading these reports. Um, the Haitian authorities took Mr. Sanon into custody but offered little explanation as to how Sanon, who did not hold elected office, planned to take over once the president was killed. So this guy wanted to be president. He's not in office. He's not even next in line. He's not one of the three people currently contesting that they should be president right now. Uh, it was also difficult to understand how he might have financed a team of Colombian mercenaries. Remember, many of the people who were arrested were Colombian mercenaries, um, some of whom received American military training when they were members of their nation's armed forces to carry out such an, an ambitious assault, given that he filed in Florida for Chapter 7 bankruptcy in 2013. Like... The depths of ridiculousness. So my man living in Florida hired a bunch of formerly American trained Colombian mercenaries to kill the president, Jovenel Moise, and then come and step into his role. What? It gets weirder. There's more people with more ties to the United States, actually. Um, among the participants in these meetings, which, by the way, guys, this is I didn't get this. They planned this on Zoom. This has got to be one of the first Zoom planned coups. It's which really is a coup for Zoom. I mean, if you think about it. All right. So the participants were Mr. Duverger uh, or Mr. Duverger said were at least two other key suspects who have since been identified by Haitian officials as central figures in the plot. One was Antonio Intriago, who owns a private security and equipment company that hired former Colombian commandos and brought them into Haiti. The other was Walter Ventemilla, who lives in a small financial services company who leads a small financial services company in Miramar, Florida, called Worldwide Capital Lending Group. On Wednesday, the Haitian authorities accused him of helping to finance the assassination plot. Now, I know more is going to unfold after this when it comes to what exactly happened in Haiti, but I raise this and I bring all these insane, sordid details into it to explain that here is a country where Jovenel Moise that the United States was backing uh, even beyond when he sh they should have been backing him, um, who ruled by decree, essentially, who who was clamping down on protests just in the way that the Cuban government is clamping down on protests, that in order to topple this guy, there's a bunch of like bizarre right-wing mercenary private fine private capital companies and like financing entities that are running money into a coup plot against this guy and like you can only imagine we talked about the future of what will happen to Cuba I can only imagine the 
small finance capital firms that are proposing to some random Cuban dissident or expat that they should be the next president and all they've got to do is hire these mercenaries, go in there. I mean, it's not beyond the pale, right? Obviously, the country's got to get in a lot worse shape, i.e. in the shape of Haiti, um, to even get there. But this is what happens when a country has been so utterly devastated and ravaged by corruption, by crony capitalism, by foreign entities, by corporations. You get Haiti, where the people come last. So obviously, there was a huge earthquake, I believe, in 2010. And... Haiti got $13 billion since that earthquake and still hasn't managed to actually have a a functioning government that respects, you know, humanitarian rights, uh, human rights, civil rights with, with, you know, a a robust economy, with jobs. This is from the New York Times. Also, why Haiti still despairs after $13 billion in foreign aid. Since a powerful earthquake devastated the country in 2010, foreign aid seems only to have helped perpetuate some of the country's biggest troubles. And this person writes, Haiti is less a failed state than what an analyst called an aid state, eking out an existence by relying on billions on relying on billions of dollars from the international community. Foreign governments have been unwilling to turn off the spigots, afraid to let Haiti fail. I mean, what could be worse, right? There's already gangs and drug money and insane in- insecurity and instability, violence. I think it's failed. I think you got, it failed on your watch. If you're trying to take ownership over Haiti. And guys, what I mean by that is the Clintons, you know, I love the like the BS Clinton body count conspiracy because all you've got to do is look at Haiti and be like, oh, no, no, there's the body count. It's Haiti. Like, so the Clintons and the Clinton Foundation, I believe, basically worked backdoor deals to make sure that corporations had a home in Haiti for cheap labor. They rallied against, this is in the, in the late 90s, I believe, they, they rallied against a wage increase for Haitian workers that was something like 60, 40 cents or something, a 40 cent increase for Haitian workers, a minimum wage increase, and they worked against it in Haiti so that Hanes Underwear and Victoria's Secret and other companies that have used Haiti as a just a ridiculous free trade zone of, of underpaid and exploitative labor could continue to do that. Again, that is extreme capitalism. That's what that looks like in the Caribbean. That's what foreign intervention looks like in the Caribbean. That's what Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and others want to see out of Cuba. They don't want to see you know, mom and pop shops getting influxes of money in order to run, you know, bed and breakfasts and, you know, hardware stores and, 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 and making deals with, with um, companies in Florida to support their, no, 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 they don't want that. They want sweatshops. They want targets and Walmarts and Amazon processing centers, right? Like that's the future. That would be success supposedly. There's nothing about building a nation there. It's about cheap labor. And that is the role of the Caribbean in the minds of the United States and and a lot of the world, sadly. Anywho, um, I so appreciate you all being here. I'm I'm sorry that I 
that I haven't gotten to many of your <laughs> many of your comments. Chuck Diesel Zoom is now guilty by association. <laughs> so funny. I knew it. I knew it. Zoom's Zoom's done some shady stuff. Let's let's all agree. Um, guys, before we go, let's do one last thing. So James Carville went on Chris Cuomo, and uh, he had a lot to say about the noisy left that is obsessed with identity. And uh, this is him. I don't have a video clip, but I'm just going to read it in his voice. The, the whole noisy identity left is uh, 15% of the Democratic Party. Uh, two-thirds of Republicans agree with these loony insurrectionists and this kind of stuff. Yet we pay such a terrible price politically for a slightly more fringe element of our party. Okay, so what he's saying there is 15% of the Democratic Party is, according to him, like, identity obsessed leftists but we pay a bigger price democrats do for those 15 percent than what republicans pay for the two-thirds of them who believe that the election was stolen and like you know trump actually won in arizona or whatever he's not wrong about that he's not wrong that like what the way i would put it would be that like let's say people who are like abolish ice which i agree with and defund the police which i agree with but i'm a fringe lefty that we get more shine and we have to like uh we are her heralded and not heralded but we are put into the spotlight by right wingers um and dem and asked by democrats to condemn us right you know that ilhan omar saying something very on point about how both the united states and the taliban have terrorized the afghan people that Republicans, the Democrats have to run, you know, defense to that uh, small opinion, which is a good opinion, but it's like relatively um, a small number of, Repub of Democrats that hold that opinion. Whereas Republicans are just openly endorsing insurrection and openly saying that it is fine to contest this election and yet openly not saying that that Trump actually did lose. And they never get hold to account for that. So in that, I think he's right. I think he is right. Um, he calls it the whole noisy identity left. However, the identity left. Now, what do we mean by identity left? I'm sure he means uh, uh, people who think that race and racism matter. Right? Because this is the way he says it. The most important constituents in our party are blacks and suburban women. First of all, I don't like the way you said blacks. They're not into this, all right? And again, we're seeing it time and again. We're letting a noisy wing of our party define the rest of us. And my point is, we can't do that. I think these people are kind of nice people. I think they're naive. I think they're all into language and identity, and that's not right. They're not storming the Capitol, but they're not winning elections. And I think some people see that for what it is, and people way more, and people way more interested in their lives and how to improve them than they are in somebody else's pronouns or something people are more interested in their lives than someone else's pronouns or something well someone else's pronouns might actually get them killed or not uh someone else accepting someone else's pronouns is a difference between life and death for many trans people in this country so have a little bit of a problem with that but you see the way he's going it's 
Democrats are too concerned with their little fifi pet issues that are supposedly trans issues, right? That that is so fringe, um, and that you know they're they're too they're too into talking about being black and brown and how Black Lives Matter and blah 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 blah, and they need to just win elections. Cory Bush, Black Lives Matter organizer. Uh, she in, uh, in, um, why am I blanking on where she's from? Cori Bush won St. Louis. Thank you. Missouri, Missouri, not Minnesota. Cori Bush won her election. The squad is growing. Now I think James Carville needs to be direct. He needs to say we centrist Democrats are losing elections. Y'all are losing elections. But the people talking about Medicare for all, the people talking about Black Lives Matter, the people talking about a Green New Deal, the people talking about climate change, the people talking about, you know, uh, justice for the LGBTQ community. Those people are winning elections. Pramila Jayapal has a trans kid, is openly talking about that. Keeps winning her election, right? Uh, Katie Porter. These are people who are winning their elections. In fact, I would argue that the so-called fringe of the Democratic Party is the only reason that Democrats even win at all. That the squad is the only reason that people still have any faith in the Democratic Party because we're actually electing better Democrats. Because we've got people like Justice Dems out there in front, you know? That's why. So it's, and and I, I just think it's so ridiculous also to be, to equate because I think what happens is a lot of centrist Democrats, a lot of news outlets and anchors, they equate the right's fringe with the left's fringe. Well, the left's fringe wants crazy things like, you know, health care for everybody and child care. And the right um, wants a white power police state that overturns elections and stops teachers from teaching about critical race theory. What? These two things are not equal. You know, and to the Republicans credit, they see that the most energy devoid of morals, they see the most energy in their party is coming from a fucking far right Nazi movement. And they're like, yeah, I think we'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Lauren Boebert, you know, uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, uh, MAGA. Hell yeah. Let's go with that. We'll do that. Mitch McConnell's like, ooh, let's do that because that will get our agenda passed. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah. And Democrats are too stupid to realize that their energy is not only different, but it's where the energy is in the Democratic Party. And that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi should be saying, ooh, ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. Green New Deal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go with that because we're going to win elections. Oh, yeah, because guess what? That 15% fringe that James Carville thinks is fringe are young people. And they're more of us. And we're getting older. And we can vote more. And we were not born yesterday. So that fringe is your only lifeline to being relevant, buddy. Not to mention Cori Bush of St. Louis, of Missouri, my bad, is one of the only Congress people also to say that the people who aided and abetted insurrection, like it says in our Constitution, you can no longer do, they should be gone. They should be out that the crazies in the Republican Party should be gone. Schumer doesn't have the balls to say that. Manchin sure as hell doesn't have the balls to say that. Cinema doesn't have the balls to say that. 
So Black Lives Matter, trans rights, these are not pet issues. Just because they are held up by the right wing as so-called pet issues doesn't mean they are. Just because they're seen as identity, oh, you're a little identity issues, they're not. They're not small. They're about civil rights. They're about whether or not you die in the street with a police officer on your neck or you survive. So the last thing I'll say on this is I've seen leftists play into this all the time. Leftists play into the idea that identity politics and that woke wokeism, that that's the real reason that the left isn't stronger is because we're too focused on identity and we're too focused on race and gender and not focus enough on class. Well, why not all three? That's been my response. Why not all three? And stop with the Trump and MAGA appeal to the working class. We know they don't. The stats say they don't. Okay? They're boat dads. They're independently wealthy. They fly private jets to go do an insurrection. So none of this populist meet in the middle BS and none of this all we have to do is throw black people and trans people and women's issues under the bus and focus on class and we'll get the government we want. No. And I, I would like to say that Bernie Sanders campaign absolutely proved that you don't have to do that, you know, and I don't think that campaign was above criticism when it comes to reaching out and actually working with uh, black and brown community leaders to be in his campaign. But I think he did a very good job at creating a multiracial, anti-racist, feminist, um, pro-LGBTQ plus political movement. And I hope leftists remember that when you listen or you platform people like James fucking Carville, or you say, oh, James is right. Maybe we are too focused on identity. That is some neo-lib centrist bullshit. Okay? That is the shit that after... Hillary lost. The one thing I didn't agree with was people being like, well, did she focus too much on gender? No, she was just a bad candidate. And gender was one of the things that probably the only thing she had. Right. Oh, did we focus? You know, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not going to be, get, you know, we're not going to be baited by that horrible argument. Anywho. Why is Chris Cuomo still on CNN? Okay. Thank you guys for dealing with my brain farts, um, me being worried about my cat, and for talking about Cuba and Latin America. I love this. I love you all. And and hey, if you can, subscribe on Twitch. Become a patron, patreon.com slash bituationroom. It really means the world. And if you can't, I totally understand. Hey, head on to Apple Podcasts and write this podcast or review. Give it five stars. You know it's me and my labor of love. You know I don't even, mom, mama don't even have sound. I will stop referring to myself as mama. I'm thinking of my cat. Okay, you guys. <laughs> See you Sunday. We've got a great show on Sunday. Uh, we're talking about indigenous rights and we're talking about Britney Spears, bitch. Hell yeah. I love that those two things are in one episode. Sunday at 580 Stern. Do not miss it. Take very good care, guys. Bye.